Hi there. I'm Laura Mark and I'm the keeper of Walmer Yard. Walmer Yard is the home of the Baylight Foundation, which explores how analogue and traditional experiences of architecture stand in an increasingly digital future of virtual and enhanced reality, where the half is replaced by the mobile phone. In this series of podcasts, we talk to those, often from outside the fields of architecture, who are using different means to explore a deeper spatial understanding of the buildings which we inhabit. Today we're speaking to Lily Bernheimer. Lily is a researcher, writer and consultant in environmental psychology. She is the founding director of Spaceworks, a consultancy which develops evidence-based design strategies for workplaces. And recently she completed a major study into wellbeing and prison design with Matter Architecture, which won the 2018 Reva President Award for Research. Lily is also the author of The Shaping of Us, How Everyday Spaces Structure Our Lives and Wellbeing. what environmental psychology is. So environmental psychology is an interdisciplinary wing of social science that studies both built and natural environments in terms of how they impact our psychology, our behavior, and our well-being. So that includes homes, um, workspaces, public space, um, but also, you know, how we relate to and act in um, city squares and forests and, and out in nature and those sort of places. And what is it that you do at your company, Spaceworks? I came to the UK to get my master's in environmental psychology um, back in 2011 and um, you know, learned about all of this amazing research, which is really useful in helping architects and interior designers and um, town planners understand how to design these spaces to work better in terms of human well-being. But what we found was, unfortunately, uh, a lot of that research wasn't getting into the hands of the people who could make the best use of it. So we sort of realized there was a gap there and my co-founders and I started Spaceworks to fill what we saw as a gap between research and practice. So we work with architects, uh, interior designers, we work with uh, larger consultancies who need a behavioral science um, expert on the team and also with government agencies. We've worked with the Ministry of Justice and Transport for London. I see what we do as sort of the equivalent of user experience design, but for architecture. So, you know, when you design, you 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 put a new website or, or some iPhone app out for use, you know, often there's a few things that go wrong initially. And that's where they have these different versions of apps and they invest in user experience research and testing. Of course, it's not always perfect, but they invest in that to try to make these things work better. You know, but unfortunately, we, we don't have a sort of built-in process like that for architecture. And um, so that's where environmental psychology comes in. What we have done at Spaceworks uh, to try to take those, you know, great lessons, the evidence that are uh, coming from academia, and then translate those 
into, you know, sort of um, services and practices that architects and, and designers and policymakers can use to create spaces that are better for human well-being and that work better for whatever the goals are for that space. It's a really good comparison because UX design is kind of so tested, and but we rarely test our buildings after we've gone into them. So it's a good point. Yeah, it's so funny because you, you would think that, you know, when, when I make that comparison, it's sort of so clear to people and they say, really, that's crazy. You know, why don't we have something like that? And there's a number of reasons for that, but we need more of it. So why don't architects work more with environmental psychologists? And why don't architects really know what environmental psychology is? That is a, a great question. I think, unfortunately, um, environmental psychology, the, the name of the field is a little bit misleading. And it leads people to think that it's all about um, sustainability. You wouldn't believe the huge number of people when I tell them that I'm an environmental psychologist and they say, oh, so you ask trees about how they feel, um, <laughs> which I think is a wow wildly funny comment that I've never heard before. Um, but, um, you know, th there are environmental psychology researchers who do um, do research more on sustainability issues and uh, considerations of behavior change. How do we design spaces in ways that will encourage kind of sustainable behaviors? But the environment really refers to something bigger than that, which is, you know, we have social psychology, how do people relate to other people? And then environmental psychology is the piece of how do we relate to our environments? I think that part of the problem is just that architecture is already a very expensive and intensive process. So there's there's often not the budget for additional consultants that are not absolutely required. The other thing is that with the website or some other product design that you might get it right. And then once you do, you're just literally replicating the same product over and over again. Once you have completed a building, it can be harder to go and make those changes. Now, that's not to say that there aren't lots of like minor changes. You know, I mean, there's a lot to do with just how you've laid out the furniture and the space and things like that, that can make a huge, huge difference. But I think there may be a fear from some architects that if they engage in this sort of process of looking at what's working and what could work better in a building, that that may, um, may open uh, them up to just people saying, well, this is wrong. And now you've spent X million pounds on it. <laughs> um, so I, I think there's a little bit of a, a fear. There can be a fear from that side. And then it's also just, it, it, it's just habit. It's just that it's not part of a defined process. And so um, certainly there are uh, architects who engage in post-occupancy evaluation is the, is the sort of formal term for going back and assessing a building once it's not just completed, but you're actually seeing people um, in use. It's also a sort of wonky term that doesn't make sense to anyone who isn't <laughs> very familiar with it. You know, what's great is if you're doing a renovation project, because that's a point where it's not scary to say, okay, we know we want to improve this space. That's not scary to anyone. You already have an existing space with people using it. And so it's a perfect chance to go in and, and study that behavior and um, and use that to inform uh, the, the renovation, the redesign. It's, it can be a little bit trickier if you're starting completely from scratch and there isn't an existing space to study how people are using it. it that makes it more challenging as well. So so there's a, there's a number of, of reasons. There's so much to be gained from integrating this kind of work. And, you know, even if the next building you're doing might be slightly different from the last one, there's often a lot you can learn from, you know, oh, right, we looked at hospitals 
hospital X and here's how we can improve hospital Y. So I think we need to get away from the idea of, uh oh, we're going to find some tiny fault with this building and towards the, this is an ongoing iterative design process that we're going to learn and create buildings that really work better for the people and purposes they serve. And what tips would you give to architects who did want to get involved with environmental psychology or to take some of the practices of it into their work or to involve someone like you? So I have put together a checklist that architects and also everyday people, you know, it's something you can use in your own home. Um, it's something an office manager could use to think about how well their office is working. I call it the balance checklist because um, it's a way of uh, helping you think about the many uh, factors that you need to balance to create spaces that really work for people. And also, of course, because it forms a handy acronym um, <laughs> that helps you remember all of those points. First point on the balance checklist is biophilia. Biophilia refers to, uh, it literally means love of nature, refers to love of life, refers to the innate attraction that humans have for the natural world. So, you know, why we love views of trees and flowers and um natural materials, natural light, all of those things. And I think biophilia is really this guiding principle that architects can think about across all of their work. So when we, you know, take a look at a, a room and and how it's affecting someone's well-being, we can often think of that in terms of, well, what sort of natural environment would a person most thrive and excel in? And then how does, you know, how does this space sort of line, line up with that? You know, so, um, people like to have views around them to see what they might be moving towards, what potential threats might be coming towards then. We also like natural light. We like natural airflow. And, you know, all of those things are things that we can sort of look, how does this support our well-being in the natural world? And then, um, consider how that's working inside a building in terms of those things. Then there's lots of other, um, sort of points on the checklist. So the first A, um, stands for atmospheric qualities, like some of the ones I was just talking about. The next one stands for, the L stands for layout. And um, that's thinking about how well does the layout of the space affect people's well-being, but also how well does it support the function of what they're trying to do in the space? Because it might be really different if you have an office where people are working really collaboratively, or if you have an office where people are working really individually. Anyway, so, you know, noise, um, amenities, on and on. I think that's a really easy starting place for a lot of architects to um, start thinking about these things because it's in this nice kind of checklist form and you can find it in my book. And you did work with Matter Architecture on a project looking at well-being in prisons. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. So that was a really exciting project, which we did uh, over the course of 2017. Essentially, Matter Architecture had done a lot of pre previous work, um, including with some other partners, such as the RSA, um, looking at how we can change the way our incarceration spaces work to be more rehabilitative in a variety of ways. So they had already looked at things like access to work opportunities and contact with families and, and all of that. And then this was the point in the process where they said, okay, we want to look at the physical design of incarceration spaces and consider how 
we can design these spaces in a way that's better for rehabilitation. And I just think that's important to note because um, it certainly we wouldn't be right to say that we can address all of the problems um, with incarceration systems through design alone. But I think that is one of the things that we can do while also thinking about those other factors. So uh, we did a post-occupancy evaluation of the newest prison in uh, the UK, which is HMP Berwyn in Northern Wales. And um, it was a really great opportunity to, like I said, go into a space right after it's been constructed and then finally People are in it. They're starting to use it. And we have a great opportunity to look at what's working and not working. And also to, to use that information. What we did coming out of the study was to create a guide for, um, well-being in prison design. We presented that to the Ministry of Justice. And, um, the intention was that they would then use that in the next spaces they're designing to, um, create spaces that would really be more rehabilitative. One of the really sort of simple and interesting things we found was that the way the housing blocks are laid out could be done in a way that would really optimize the biophilic properties of the space. So this is a facility, you know, out in the countryside with some potentially really lovely views. And the way the housing blocks traditionally have been laid out is if you looked at it from a bird's eye view, it would be in the shape of a letter K. And that kind of goes back to this panopticon ideal that um, the guard would be in the middle and they'd be able to see down all the different wings, but it actually doesn't even functionally operate that way at this point. It's kind of just a holdover. And and so what we realized was if they just made a, a little shift and laid those housing blocks out in the shape of a, a cross instead of a letter K, that meant that many more of the windows of the detainees in the prison would be looking out across these, um, you know, sort of common grassy areas they have outside, you know, potentially looking out of the Welsh countryside instead of looking at a brick wall. Um, One of the most famous studies in environmental psychology looked at patients recovering from surgery, some in a room with a view of trees and some in a room with a view of a brick wall, evenly matched for their conditions, age, everything. And the, the patients in the room with a view of trees recovered more quickly from the surgery and they also experienced less pain in the process. So that sort of contact with nature, that ability to have a view of a tree um, really affects our restoration on a very physical level and, you know, should therefore also really (laughs) affect rehabilitation if the kind that we want to be going on in these incarceration spaces. That was this one really sort of simple finding that came out of the study. One of the best things about that is that it wouldn't cost anything more to make that design change. In fact, it actually would probably cost less because it's a simpler engineering to um, have right angles than to have the acute angle buildings they had before. Um, so that's our, that's our sort of favorite take home, but there were, there were many, many things we found and, um, it's all available in the report, which, um, you can find online at, um, Matter Architecture's website, Wellbeing in Prison Design. In your book, you say housing is more deeply intertwined with our sense of self, community and safety than workplaces or hospitals. So is there a reason for it? And is it just to do with our belongings and the feeling of homeliness or does the architecture play a part in that? I would say that both. Absolutely. One of the things that's so interesting about our relationship to our homes from a research perspective is that it's actually um, quite difficult to get kind of 
really objective research about homes. I mean, if you think about offices, you could sort of have a big company and okay, they put one team in this office and one team in X office and they match them for all these factors and do a study. Boom, there you go. Oh, very clean results, you know? Um, and, but then when you look at the research, so I, in my book, I, I looked at a lot of research about housing and, and particularly in relation to, um, housing density and to high rises because, you know, we have, very serious housing crises, um, both in the UK and, um, you know, here in the, in the San Francisco Bay area where I live or really in, in the state of California, um, as a whole. And, uh, this question of should we build more densely is something that comes up a lot, but it was really difficult to find really objective research because you don't just say, Oh, family A, you're going to go live here. Family B, you're going to go live there. And we've matched all these factors. And, you know, you could, they kind of have to find natural experience, natural experiments essentially where, okay, you have people who are in, um, publicly supported housing. And so, hopefully they were sort of evenly, they were randomly distributed between the low rise building and the high rise building, but it's not, it's not the same as that, what you could do in a hospital or what you could do in an office to really get that kind of random control. So, um, so it was interesting, just that, that difference in the ability to have this objective data made me realize how different, um, the relationship to home is because it's so linked into, you know, our relationship with our family and, and social connections and all of that, that it even makes it hard to get sort of objective data in, in, in some respects like that. There's a area of research within environmental psychology called place identity. And what this means is not just that, you know, I, I identify as a as a San Franciscan or you identify as a Londoner. It's it's bigger than that. It's talking about the part of your own identity that is anchored in your relationship to the place you live or to even multiple places you've lived. Um, and this helps us explain why people often have somewhat kind of irrational, <laughs> emotional um, reactions to when they uh, see changes going on in the physical fabric of their neighborhood. So, you know, there might be some kind of empty lot on, on your block and it's been there since you were a child. But, you know, you remember seeing like daisies growing there and you maybe you play in there when you were a child and um, and then you find out there's going to be some new building built on that empty lot and and people get all up in arms and even though they know there's a housing crisis like no 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 we don't want this here because it it's it's changing their sense of identity it, it's changing their neighborhood their home and that is kind of um they that can interpret that as sort of a threat to their own identity in a way so with our home environments, um, you know, we tend to find that people have the strongest. We might gain one, one part of our identity from being in our home nation and another part from being in our home city and our neighborhood. Um, and then, uh, our home often is, you know, the most deeply strongly linked to that sense of identity. And that can, 
you know, that can support our identity in positive ways. It can also support our identity in ne- in some negative ways as well. If you see that, you know, your house is um, really kind of um, messy and, and cluttered, that may contribute to your holding an identity that you're not a very organized or cleanly person. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, of course, um, our home environments are also tend to be a very important way of um, expressing our identity, both to ourselves and to others. So, um, you know, if you see yourself as a really modern, cutting edge person, then that may be important to you to have a modern house and furniture. If you see yourself as a more um, traditional person or, you know, family uh, history is really important to you, you know, those are all things that people um, may express um, through if if they have a choice over the style of their house, style of their house and furnishings and, and, and all of those things. Part of it is, is these sort of logistics of just where we, we spend time and, and how that, and, and where our family is and how that relates to our identity. But, but certainly, um, the, the style, also what we're allowed to do in our homes, you know, typically in an office, you, um, maybe if you have your own private office, you get to, you get to personalize that a lot. Um, many, many people these days have very little ability to personalize their office and we'll see what happens with that after, uh, we'll see what's coming on the next frontier. Um, but so part of also part of why homes are, are so important to our identity is because we have typically greater ability to personalize them. And that's sort of a form of like, it's marking our territory, but it also makes those environments reflect our personality. Um, and that means that we, you know, continue to sort of, it's, it's, it's a reciprocal re- relationship between the space and between our identity. I guess it's partly to do with culture as well. Like in English language, we don't really have a word for it, but in the Welsh language, they have a word called hirif, which means like the feeling and the longing for home. And I guess that's partly a kind of cultural thing. I think they have a similar word in like Swedish, and um, which is all really closely linked to that feeling of home and identity and self. Yeah. And interestingly, I was um, just reading a book on the history of home. I think it's called Home uh, History of an Idea or something like that by, um, I'm probably saying his name wrong, but Vitold uh, Rubczynski, uh, or architectural author. And he says that the most of the, uh, the romance, and I think he says Slavic languages as well, actually don't have an equivalent word to home. You know, there's, there's a word for house, but there isn't a word for home that combines, it can mean physically your house, or it can also mean your home could be your neighborhood. Your home could be your, what you're saying. It's sort of the longing of the sense of home. So I think that that's more something English has. And, and maybe some more of the like Dutch or, or Germanic languages. But um, yeah, so it's really interesting how that, you know, the fact that we have a, a word for home that's separate from house, I think, not that those cultures don't have that, but <laughs> it, it's, it speaks to the, um, the, the strength of that sort of psychological need and, and concept. And you touched on it a little bit there about memory, but in your book, you talk about memory in terms of ruin porn. 
But what part does memory play in our experience of buildings that aren't yet ruins? I guess that what I was saying about our sort of seemingly irrational reactions <laughs> that we can have to seeing our, our neighborhoods changed, um, you know, I, I think that's sort of, it, it's changing our, our memory of the space, the, the physical, um, form of our, our neighborhood is, is starting to change and not to resemble, um, the memories that we have of the, the space, how it was from it. When you go back to a, a place and it, it looks the same, you can kind of feel like it's still Still there, and the past that you had, and the past relationships you had are still there. And when the physicality changes, you know you can start to feel like that's being lost to some extent. I think that we really use our cities, our our memory of them, to sort of ground our memories overall. I've, I've heard there's some technique that you can create what's called a memory palace in your mind, and you can remember all kinds of facts. If you pretend to yourself that you have a house palace really in your mind and you go into the rooms and remember different things that that actually can enable you to remember much, much more than you would be able to. And so, you know, I, I think that that's kind of going on already when we think about our lives. I find it much easier to remember things. I moved around a lot. I lived in New York before I came to the UK and then I lived in three different places in the UK and now I've been back in California for a few years and it's getting harder to remember what happened one year and another because when I lived in Guildford or Bristol or London, you know, it's all, oh, I was there and I, that was this year. Now it's all, it's all starting to blur together more. So, so space is, is very important and architecture is very important, I think, to our, um, to our memories. And some of the research you talk about in your book talk about our preference for decoration and curved lines and golden proportions. Why is this? And what does it have to do with how a building makes us feel? One of the things that I found sort of looking across lots of different research was that going back to this idea of biophilia before and and thinking of that as a bigger principle that helps us explain which buildings sort of seem to support our well-being best, but also that have this enduring appeal that people want to come back to over and over again. One of the things that I learned about was this concept of ordered complexity. And when you think about, say, a, a street in London of terraced houses, or in New York, similarly, you might have a row of brownstones, or in San Francisco, it would be a row of, of wooden Victorians. And you're walking down a street like that. All of the buildings on the street, they share basics certain design principles in common, you know, they're all roughly the same form and shape. But when you look closely, each one tends to vary slightly from the one next to it. So they might have, you know, slightly different types of windows and moldings and one house has a balcony and the next doesn't and they, they have different sorts of ornamentation on them. And this produces this balance of order and complexity. There's sort of a certain amount of order, but it also varies within that. And what we find is this balance of order and complexity has a great impact on us where it, it's calming and stimulating at the same time. So when we are out in nature, you know, walking around a forest or something like that, we see kind of a similar balance of order and complexity. You, know, you see a, a bunch of trees and they're all basically on the same model, but they're also not exactly the same. Each one is slightly different from the one next to it. 
if you look further, it, it turns out that a lot of the natural world is defined by uh, fractal geometry, which, you know, you can look into the definition and everything, but it's sort of like when you see a fern and the overall form of the fern looks like it's replicated in all the smaller fronds of the fern. It's sort of replicating self-similarity on multiple scales. And we find this sort of fractal patterns in vernacular architecture um, all around the world. So, you know, even when you look at something simple like the molding above your window, the um, sort of geometry of, uh, if it's one of those flared moldings, you look at it carefully and you'll see there's sort of smaller detailing that mimics the shape of the overall form within the smaller form of the molding. So uh, it, it seems like we have this uh, sort of natural orientation towards this um, fractal geometry because that's that's what most of the natural world is like. That's the world that our um, that our minds and bodies evolved to function in. So many people believe when our um, when our built environment um, has this sort of fractal properties in it, it's simply easier for our minds to process and make sense of because that's closer to the sort of environment that we evolved to function in. And then in your book, you you touch on personal space a bit and proxemics and the work of the anthropologist Edward T. Hall. And his work looked at how personal space requirements change depending on the size of the room. And it seems like this is really relevant right now. So can you tell us a little more about this? And do you think kind of our ideas of this might change or become more important now as we're kind of aware of like two meter distancing and things like that? Basically, Edward Hall found that we had these sort of, he called them personal space bubbles that we carry around with us. Um, that sort of the, the amount of personal space that we expect to have between ourselves and other people. But what he found was that, um, this is, it's not just a static bubble, of course, and, um, it, it, it's not actually, it is permeable and everything, but, um, that he found that we, we tend to have different sort of sizes of bubbles for different situations we're in. So when, you know, we're the, our, our most intimate contacts, they're allowed in closer than, than 1.5 feet. Um, but for, you know, everyday friends and everything, um, we tend to keep them around 1.54 feet away from us. And then for people that we, you know, know socially, but they're, they're not really close friends, then, then they tend to be more four to eight feet away from us. And that's, you, you might notice, well, not now before, <laughs> before social distancing, if you were talking to someone, and you sort of put your arm out and they tend to almost always be about arm's length away from you. So it's sort of like just out of, just out of touching range. And then when you're, you know, more in like a, a public people you don't know at all, public speaking, then, then it would be more like 10 feet or greater. So that was, you know, those were what he found. Um, this was particularly in the U.S. because these sort of personal space bubbles can, of course, vary and change between different cultures. But then interestingly, um, he found that when our, when we're in sort of, um, smaller, um, more constricted spaces, we actually desire greater personal space. So um, men in particular uh, seem to have um, a great desire for greater personal space in spaces with low ceilings. Um, and then uh, we, we also kind of want more personal space if we're in narrow rooms. Um, 
when we're um when we're sitting down um and when we're in the corner rather than the center of the room so it's almost like being in a constricted space seems to sort of activate our our fight or flight response and we're feeling a little bit trapped and so of course this doesn't mean you always get that much personal space i mean when you're in a crowded train carriage you might want more personal space it doesn't mean you get it but you know if you're in a narrow room and you have the ability to space out people tend to tend to do that more um and you know i I think this is a really interesting sort of um, explanation for what, you know, Americans sort of sometimes perceive British to be um, a bit uh, chilly in their um, sort of uh, social norms around around friendliness. And it sort of makes uh, sense if, uh, you know, British houses are, are some of the smallest in Europe and, um, you know, just, just many of your everyday spaces there are smaller than our, um, you know, shops or, or streets or things in America. So it kind of makes sense because people are perpetually being a little bit crowded there. Then they actually have a desire to, to keep a little bit more space. Whereas in America, we're all spread out and you meet someone new and you just run right up to them and sort of start jumping on them, <laughs> jumping all over them. <laughs> so, um, it, it's a little bit of a tricky concept to understand, but I think that's a great, illustration of it. Of course, now we're all in this, um, you know, crazy situation where, you know, most of us have been staying two meters or six feet apart from um, everyone we don't live with. And in some cases, even people you do live with for all these months, it will be really interesting to see what happens going forward. I think that we are going to see even, you know, even once we, if we are lucky enough to get a vaccine in the next year or so, um, I, you know, I mentioned there were those four different levels of the personal space bubble. So the intimate, I don't think that's going to change too much. People are still going to be intimate with people they're going to be intimate with. And then at the public distance, you know, more than 10 feet. All right. Well, that's good. We've kind of got that going. But then at the two, the two middle ones, the, the personal and the social, I think those will both continue to be bumped up to greater distances for a long time to come. I think even once we get a vaccine, these concerns are still going to be there. One of the things Edward Hall, Edward T. Hall looked at was that different cultures have these different personal space bubbles. We're moving into a new culture here. Edward T. Hall uh, referred to it as a silent language, actually, that, that personal space was sort of a form of communication. And we're all, we're in the midst of building a new, um, learning to speak a new language right now. And final question. So from your work, what do you think will be the main changes in architecture and well-being as a result of the time we're living in now in this pandemic? There's uh, been so much speculation about, you know, what this will mean for the design of workspaces, the design of homes, the design of um, public spaces. And I think it's good to, um, to ground that a little bit in the understanding where we had been moving over the course of, uh, you know, the, the second part of the 20th century and, and <laughs> that we're well into this century now. I keep forgetting that. Um, <laughs> the 21st century. Um, so we, you know, we had been moving towards this, um, sort of shrinking amount of, uh, personal space, space per person in offices. You know, we were getting more and more people crammed into smaller space and, you know, hot desking, not even having your own desk. 
At the same time, the size of new dwellings in the UK had been shrinking for many years, so less space per person in new dwellings. But new dwellings are a small percentage of dwellings overall, so we were still seeing a growing amount of space per person in the home overall because of shrinking family sizes, um, you know, people doing home extensions and all of that. That still meant that we were getting more space per person overall. So. I think we're going to see a big reversal of the trend that we were seeing in offices. Um, and I don't think it's all good because there's everything I've heard about offices reopening it. They don't sound like particularly fun places to be at the moment. You're wearing a mask and you can't eat anything. And But in terms of how this is going to affect the amount of space per person in office, I think it could be good to ha- that we're having a little bit of pushback on that shrinking, shrinking space per person, um, because that I, I think was becoming quite inhumane for a lot of people as well. I would expect we, I don't think the office is coming to an end. You know, I think for a lot of people, this is opening up new horizons and thinking about working more flexibly. And that's been great. But for a lot of people, it's also shown them how important going to the office is in terms of having like a real separate space for their work identity. Someone said to me yesterday, you know, more than working from home, it feels like I'm living in my office now. And that's not, that's not good for us psychologically. So I could really see moving towards some more sort of a model where we have, you know, smaller offices and, you know, different teams rotate in one week out of the month and they work from home or from local co-working spaces the rest of the time or, you know, people or, or on a daily, you know, like team A is in Monday, Tuesday, team B is in, you know, something like that so that we don't, um, we don't have to have as much office space and so that people can reap some more of those benefits of less commuting time and being able to work in their own neighborhood. But I don't think that people are really going to want the whole office to go away. And that, of course, means that people are having will have different needs from their homes. I think um, the the need for really um, good home working setups is just going to it completely explode. And, um, you know, that's probably going to look like people doing, I mean, you know, in the UK with those long back gardens, so many people, there's sort of like it was made for you to install a, a little office studio at the end of the yard because there's such awkward long shapes. <laughs> um, and, and thinking about much more like broken ways to craft out little nooks in the home and that sort of thing. We're using our homes for so many types of activities now. So we need to think about designing them, it's, it's more important for them to be um, flexible than ever. I would say also with public space, we had been moving towards more socialization outside of the home. That's, uh, you know, that could kind of go either way because people are at home all the time now, but at the moment people don't want people to come inside their home. Uh, <laughs> obviously, you know, anywhere that you can um, socialize outdoors while it's warm enough to, to socialize outdoors is really popular these days. But yeah, it's very funny. Just like the assets of our homes that have suddenly become like really, it's like, Oh, why uh, there's a little like uh, landing on my like stairs up to the second floor that we can still hang out socially distance under when it's raining. And this is suddenly like a great asset of a property. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, I think the desire for, uh, you know, for 
balconies, all sorts of outdoor spaces that people can socialize in. I think people are, are going to be wanting that for a long time going forward. And then, of course, there's the redesign of um, streets that are going on in many cities and in, in opening up um, streets to be more pedestrian and um, cycling focused. And, you know, that's just great and a, a direction we should be moving in. So hopefully that will be another positive impact and, of course, need to figure out how to make it work with deliveries and and all of that. But um, I think it can be done. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed that, you can catch up with our other podcast episodes where I've interviewed the poet Lionheart, the sound artist Simon James and the smell walker, Kate McLean. They're available on Apple Podcasts app, SoundCloud or Spotify. Thanks for listening.